1: That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500.
2: I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington, where in this week before Christmas, the House is set to impeach President Trump, as well as pass a major trade agreement and fund the government. But the Senate is already preparing for a trial of the president in the new year, despite leader Mitch McConnell saying there's no chance he'll be removed from office. Saturday, the president assumed his role as Commander-in-Chief, enjoying the annual Army-Navy football game in Philadelphia. (laughs) President Trump clearly enjoyed his time out from the woes of Washington and his historic work week.
3: This has been a wild week.
2: Wild is putting it mildly. Ms. Demings? Aye. House Judiciary Committee Democrats passed articles of impeachment charging the president with abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. The brawl in committee set the stage for an even uglier debate on the House
4: floor later this week. The idea that Donald Trump was leading an anti-corruption effort is like Kim Jong-un leading a human rights effort. President of the United
1: States shook down a foreign power to come and get involved in our election. That's wrong.
5: We get it. You don't like him. That doesn't mean you can banish him from the marketplace. You can't send him out of his businesses and say he can't hold a position of honor or trust. You don't get the right to do that. The people of this country do. We live in a republic.
4: I'm just sick of this.
2: Congressman Johnson's not alone. Senate Republicans are planning for a quick trial in the new year, although the president may need some convincing.
3: I can do, I'll do whatever I want. Look, there is, we did nothing wrong. So I'll do long or short. I've heard Mitch, I've heard Lindsey. I think they
5: are very much in agreement on some concept. I'll do whatever they want to do, it doesn't matter.
2: We'll get Judiciary Committee Chairman Lindsey Graham's thoughts about a trial. And the number two Democrat in the Senate, Richard Durbin, will also weigh in. Then the administration makes big progress on two major trade agreements. We'll talk with U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer. Plus, new polling in the 2020 Super Tuesday states. Could former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg's strategy work? All that and more is just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. We begin today with the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, South Carolina Republican Lindsey Graham. He joins us from Doha, Qatar. Senator, good morning to you. Uh, The president has said he's heard you out on the merits of a short Senate trial, but he's going to do whatever he wants, he says. Uh, Should Republicans in the Senate really be taking their marching orders from the person being investigated?
6: You know, I understand the president's frustration, but I think what's best for the country is to get... Get this thing over with. I am clearly made up my mind. I'm not trying to hide the fact that I have disdain for the accusations in the process, so I don't need any witnesses. Uh, the president can make a request to call witnesses. They can make a, requ- a request to call Mike Pence and Pompeo and Joe Biden and Hunter Biden. I am ready to vote on the underlying articles. I don't really need to hear a lot of witnesses.
2: But the president says he wants, he would love those individuals to testify. He says he wants evidence. He wants to make his case. Why are you opposed?
6: Well, I'd tell the president if somebody's ready to acquit you, I'd sort of get out of the way. If you start calling the witnesses the president wants, then they're going to start calling Mike Pence and the, uh, you know, the secretary of state Pompeo. I don't think that's good for the country. I don't think it's good for the Senate. You need 51 votes to get a witness approved. I want to make my decision based on the trial record established in the House as a basis for impeachment. That's just me, one senator, but I think there's a general desire by a lot of senators to not turn this thing into a circus. I understand the president's frustration by being shut out in the house but i need to do what i think is best for the country
2: well back when you were in the house during the clinton impeachment you were an impeachment manager and i want to play a clip from what you said on face the nation back then in nineteen ninety nine
6: now all i ask for is a chance to do it meaningful if you have one day and you're, you're stuck with the judiciary report i don't think history will judge the senate well if they decide to acquit the, the president, there needs to be a record well-developed where both sides had a chance to prove their case. So I hope we have a trial that is meaningful, that will withstand historical scrutiny, that will follow the presidents of the past. I've never known an impeachment trial without a witness and just lasting one day to present the case for the House. That's frankly not fair.
2: Why have your standards for a Senate trial changed?
6: Well, uh, Ken Starr investigated uh, President Clinton for years spent millions of dollars. He was an outside counsel. Bob Mueller investigated Donald Trump for two years, spent $25 million. I supported the Mueller investigation because I think he would be fair. It was not a witch hunt in my view. This is the first impeachment trial being driven by partisan politicians, conducted behind closed doors. Uh, The testimony was selectively leaked. The president was denied the ability to participate meaningful in the House hearing, and I want to end it. I have nothing but disdain for this. I'm trying to make myself clear. What you're doing in the House is bad for the presidency. You're impeaching the President of the United States in a matter of weeks, not months. You had a two-year investigation. That wasn't enough. I think this whole thing is a crock. You're shutting the President out. The process in the House any partisan group could do this in the mm-hmm. future. You're weaponizing impeachment, and I want to end it. I don't want to legitimize it. I hate what they're doing.
2: Rudy Giuliani uh, spoke to our Paula Reed and said when he was in Ukraine just in the past few days, he had to go buy a whole separate suitcase because he came back with so many documents for this report he wants to make. He was at the White House on Friday. Do you plan to look at the information he gathered? Is he credible?
6: Well, I don't know what he found, but if he wants to come to the Judiciary Committee, Rudy, if you want to come and tell us what you found, I'd be glad to talk to you. When it comes to impeachment, I want to base my decision On the record assembled in the House, we can look at what Rudy's got and Joe Biden, Hunter Biden and anything else you want to look at after impeachment. But if Rudy wants to come to the Judiciary Committee and testify about what he found, he's welcome to do so.
2: All right. We'll look for that. Uh, You have, though, announced a separate investigation into your friend Joe Biden. Um, And you said that, that you love him. Um, but you want to pursue this investigation. He was asked about this on CNN.
5: I I
6: did. very much so.
2: He was asked about this on CNN recently, and I want to play that bite.
5: I am disappointed, and quite frankly, I'm angered by the fact he knows me. He knows my son. He knows there's nothing to this. Trump is now essentially holding power over him that even the Ukrainians wouldn't yield to. And Lindsey is about to go down in a way that I think he's going to regret his whole life.
2: He says you're going to regret this your whole life. Is there anything that you've done with this Ukraine investigation that that gives you pause?
6: Oh No, not at all. Uh, Joe Biden is a a friend. He's one of the most decent people I've ever met in my life. But here's the deal. This whole process around the Ukraine uh, is reeks with politics. They've done everything but take a wrecking ball to Donald Trump and his family. We're not going to live in a world where only Republicans get looked at. As much as I love Joe Biden, and I'm sincere when I say that, uh, now that you want to talk about Ukraine, it's pretty hard for me to go home and tell my constituents to ignore the fact that Hunter Biden received $50,000 a month from a gas company in the Ukraine, run by the most corrupt person in the Ukraine. And two months after... The gas company was investigated. The prosecutor got fired. I don't know if there's anything to this. I hope not. Uh, I hope I can look at the transcripts of the phone call between Biden and the Ukraine, Joe Biden, after the investigation began, and say there's no there there. These are legitimate concerns about what happened in the Ukraine. I love Joe Biden, but none of us. Is a, are above scrutiny I'd like to knock all this off and get back on governing the country
2: well uh, Supreme Court is also going to take a look at uh, whether or not the president can block his financial records from being released to the public I mean it's a pretty significant ruling on presidential uh, precedent here um, do you think any president yeah. should be able to block this from Congress
6: if the Supreme Court rules he has to release his financial information who would be bound to do so I personally think he should release this tax tax returns. I think anybody running for president going forward should release their tax returns, tax returns. But the president has legal rights. He's an American. We can't have laws for everybody but Donald Trump.
2: Senator Graham, thank you for joining us. We turn now to the number two Democrat in the Senate, Richard Durbin. He joins us this morning from Chicago. Good morning to you, Senator. Good morning, Margaret. You know, about 20 years ago, when Bill Clinton was being impeached, you had said at the time you wanted it dismissed. Now the tables are turned. We're set, most likely, for a trial in the Senate. But since the votes aren't in Democrats' favor, why not just dismiss it?
7: Well, I can tell you that um, it isn't just the president who's on trial in an impeachment proceeding. Uh, The Senate is on trial. And we have a constitutional responsibility. Uh, I hear people like Senator McConnell talking about the fact he sat down with the folks at the White House. He's already made his decision, uh, even before he's taken his oath to promise impartial justice. He sees no need for us to spend a lot of time. My friend Senator Lindsey Graham refers to the whole thing as a crock. You know what it boils down to is we may interfere with some tea times here, but we ought to really stand up for the uh, demeanor, the history, and the traditions of the Senate uh, in terms of doing this in the proper way.
2: So you don't want a short trial?
7: No, I think what we ought to do is, uh, as we did 20 years ago, let's have Senator McConnell sit down with Senator Schumer, uh, Trent and Lott sat down 20 years ago, and start this proceeding in the proper bipartisan way. That hasn't happened yet. I don't know what Senator McConnell is waiting for. And, Margaret, let me tell you what happened 20 years ago. They decided, Trent and Lott, that the entire Senate, all 100 members, would go to the old Senate gallery and sit down together. We realized at that moment we were embarking on a moment that would be captured in history, uh, this impeachment trial of Bill Clinton. And you had interesting alliances for him. Ted Kennedy of Massachusetts yeah. comes together with Phil Graham of Texas to talk about the procedures during impeachment. The Senate finally realized we were on trial, too, and we had to comport ourselves in a dignified way.
2: Why do you think it's so different this time? Is it, is it McConnell's leadership? Is it President Trump?
7: Well, Senator McConnell proved to us with the vacancy of Anton Scalia on the Supreme Court that he would ignore logic and common sense and even Senate tradition to take a political position. And he announced recently he would switch his position 180 degrees if the same thing happened to President Trump. So the starting point is not good. It takes four Republican senators who care enough for the Senate, for all of our colleagues to say, let's do this properly. Regardless of the outcome, whatever it may be, at the end of the day, let's be able to turn around and say... As Alexander Hamilton promised, Mm -hmm. the Senate is the right place for this trial.
2: Well, we we know the votes don't appear to be there uh, to remove the president, but when it comes to the process of this, Democrats do get a say if it does take, as Lindsey Graham has said, 51 votes to approve a witness. Do you plan to call them? And who do you want to hear from?
7: Well, I can tell you where I'm standing, if it is a true trial, there needs to be evidence. And we have had an effort by the administration to deny to the House of Representatives any evidence, documents, witnesses. At one point, Chairman Nadler of the House Judiciary invited the president or his attorneys to come sit at the dais and ask questions to follow the proceeding. They turned him down. It appears to me there are no witnesses the president would want to call to exonerate himself. Maybe such a witness doesn't exist. I don't know. But the bottom line is, if we are going to have an actual trial, we should consider evidence. And that's why I think Senator Schumer and Senator McConnell need to sit down and have an orderly, respectable process in the Senate.
2: And you have a list of witnesses set to go?
7: There are a lot of potential witnesses, that's for sure. But in terms of those that we'd actually choose and whether Mm -hmm. they'd be called or deposed, those are things we can work out once we have a spirit that this is a constitutional responsibility that really is a reflection on who we are as United States senators.
2: But less than half of the country uh, thinks that the president should be impeached. How do you make a more persuasive case to the public in the Senate than your House colleagues did?
7: I could just tell you, we present the evidence and let the American people follow this trial in the Senate. You know, it isn't a question of political popularity as far as I'm concerned. For the Mm -hmm. longest time, many of us said, which Republican is going to defy the wishes of their political base and come forward and do the right thing for the country? Same thing applies to Democrats. Uh, will we ignore our political base and look at our Constitution? That's what should guide us.
2: I want to ask you about a hearing you were part of this week, the contentious hearing over secret surveillance, uh, the FISA process, as it is called. Um, and Inspector General laid out uh, significant errors by the FBI. Uh, And specifically, I want to ask you about what an FBI lawyer did when he retroactively changed an email that was presented as part of evidence regarding a Trump campaign associate, Carter Page. Uh, Jim Comey's on Fox this morning, and he said Carter was treated unfairly. Does the U.S. government owe Carter Page an apology?
7: Well, I can certainly tell you based on what we saw, they do. Uh, And here's the bottom line. Many of us uh, have been looking at this FISA, the secret FISA court for years, saying this isn't the first and won't be the last time that the FBI misrepresents evidence before this court and proceeds. Uh, We have tried to reform the proceedings. Senator Lee, Republicans, Senator Leahy, Democrat, myself and others have been pushing for FISA reform. We couldn't get the Republicans to join us in that effort. Maybe now they will. This should be a bipartisan effort to clean up the FISA court. What happened in this situation was inexcusable. But remember what the inspector general said as the bottom line. Opening this investigation yeah. was warranted and not political.
2: But he also said there were 17 significant errors that he uncovered no alone. Um, I- I'm wondering if you have confidence in the current director, Chris Ray, to be able to fix some of these problems. Jim Comey again this morning was saying there are maybe systematic problems regarding surveillance within the FBI.
7: I do have confidence in Mr. Ray. I voted for him. I support him. I looked at his background, and I think he can do this job and do it well. But uh, to have the president uh, in his corner would be very helpful. The president's very critical of the FBI and the intelligence agencies. If we're going to bring about real reform, the White House has to be in on it.
2: All right. Senator Durbin, appreciate you joining us today. Face the Nation will be back in one minute, so stay with us.
8: (laughs) That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe.
2: This week, the U.S. and China agreed on the first phase of a trade deal that would roll back some American tariffs. It's expected to be signed in early January. We're joined now by the U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer, the top negotiator in those talks with Chinese officials. Good to have you here.
5: Thank you for having me, Margaret. Uh,
2: It's huge to have the two largest economies in the world cool off some of these tensions that have been rattling the global economy. But I want to get to some of the details here. Uh, China says it still needs to be proofread, still needs to be translated. Is you being here today a sign, this is done, this deal's not falling apart?
5: So, first of all, this is done. This is something that happens in every agreement. There's a translation period. There are some scrubs. This is totally done, absolutely. But can I make one point? Because uh, I think it's really important. Friday was probably the most momentous day in trade history ever. That day, we submitted the USMCA, the Mexico-Canada Agreement, with bipartisan support, in support of business, labor, agriculture. We actually introduced that into the House and the Senate mm-hmm. on this, which is about 1.4 trillion dollars worth of the economy. I mean, of of, of trade. And then, in addition, did this, which is about 600 billion. So that's literally about half of total trade were announced on the same day. It was extremely momentous and indicative of where we're going, what this president has accomplished.
2: Well, that is significant, and I do want to get to the USMCA, but because the China deal just happened and we know so little about it, I'd like to get some more detail from you. Uh, You said this is set. You expect the signing in early January still. Um, What gives President Trump the confidence to say China's going to go out and buy $50 billion worth of agricultural goods? Because Beijing hasn't said that number.
5: First of all, let me say, first of all, I would say this. When we look at this agreement, We have to look at where we are. We have an American system and we have a Chinese system. And we're trying to figure out a way to have these two become integrated. That's what's in our interest. Mm -hmm. A phase one deal does the following. One, it keeps in place $380 billion worth of tariffs to defend, protect US technology. So that's one part of it. Another part of it is very important structural changes. This is not about just agricultural and other purchases although I'll get to that in a second. It's it's very important. It has IP. It has has, uh, technology. It has has, has currency. It has financial services. There's a lot of very... The next thing is it's it's enforceable. There's an enforcement provision that lasts 90... It takes 90 days, and you get real, real enforcement. The United States can then take an action if China doesn't keep its uh, commitments. Put the tariffs back on. Well, you you would take a, a proportionate reaction, like we do in every other trade agreement. So that's what we expect. And finally, we'll, we'll find out whether this works or not. We have an enforcement mechanism, but ultimately whether this whole agreement works is going to be determined by who's making the decisions in China, not in the United States. If the hardliners are making the decisions, we're going to get one outcome. If the, if the reformers are making the decisions, which is what we hope, then we're going to get another outcome. This is a w- the way to think about this deal is this is a first step in trying to integrate two very different systems to the benefit of both of us.
2: But that $50 billion number, is that in writing?
5: Yeah, absolutely. So so here's what's in writing. We, we have a list that will go m- manufacturing, agriculture, services, energy, and the like. There'll be a total for each one of those. Overall, it's a minimum of $200 billion. Keep in mind, by the second year, we will just about double exports of goods to China. If this if this agreement is in place. Mm -hmm. Double exports. We had about $128 billion in 2017. We're going to go up at least by 100, probably a little over 100. And in terms of the agriculture numbers, what we have are specific breakdowns by products, and we have a commitment for $40 to $50 billion in sales. You could think of it as $80 to $100 billion in new sales For agriculture over the course of the next two years. Just massive numbers.
2: And that is important in in no small part because also this is a key political constituency for President Trump going into the election to take some pain off of American farmers who've been feeling it pretty strongly. I mean, the the USDA projects that the soybean market won't recover, I think, till 2026 because of the damage that has been done to it. So is that how much of that, that political calculus, factored into the agreement to do this in phases? Because you Look, didn't want to do it in phases.
5: Well, it, it was... Margaret. The Chinese it, it, did. it was always going to be in phases. The question was how big was the first phase. Anyone who thinks you're going to take their system and our system that have, that have worked in a very unbalanced way for the United States mm-hmm. and, and, and in one stroke of the pen, change all of that, is foolish. The president is not foolish. He's very smart. The question was how big... How big was the first phase going to be? This is going to take years. We're not going to resolve these differences very quickly. On the agriculture point, that's a good point. Let me say this. If you look at American agriculture in between USMCA, which is Canada and Mexico, China, Japan, Korea, we have rewritten the rules in favor of American agriculture on more than half, 56% of all of our exports from agriculture. This Over the course of the last year, what this president has accomplished in this area is remarkable. And any one of these deals would have been monstrous. And the fact that we have all of them together... Is, is great for agriculture. I
2: just want to button up on China, though, because the promise here was to to do the things that American businesses have been complaining about for years. Absolutely, not just the intellectual property theft, but subsidizing corporations in China in an unfair way for Americans, uh, cyber theft. None of that's here. Well, that's phase two. When do you start negotiating so, that? I mean, so first of all,
5: let's talk about what's here rather than what's not here.
2: But that's huge. Absolute that's what rules on. Said this whole trade war was starting on.
5: Look at tech. Tech transfer is huge. That's what's in the 301 report. Look, we had a plan that the president came up with a plan, we've been following it for two and a half years. We are right where we hope to be. Tech transfer, real commitments. IP, real specific commitments. I mean, this agreement is 86 pages long of detail. Agricultural barriers removed in many cases mm-hmm. financial services opening currency this is a real structural change is it going to solve all the problems no did we expect it to no do absolutely you, the not.
2: president said those talks are going to start immediately though do you have a date
5: we don't have a date no what we have to do is get this mm-hmm. We have to get the, 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 the final cut translations worked out, the formalities. We're going to sign this agreement. But I'll tell you this. The second phase two is going to be determined also by how we implement phase one. Phase one is going to be implemented right, to the, right down to every detail. It's, wanna... It really is a remarkable agreement, but it's not going to solve all the problems.
2: Well, we need to take a short break. We'll be back with U.S. Trade Representative Lighthizer in a moment. Later in the broadcast, we'll check in on how the 2020 Democratic candidates are doing in the Super Tuesday states in our new CBS News Battleground Tracker.
1: At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car or a house. It's the four wheels that get you where you're going and the four walls that welcome you home. When you combine auto and home insurance with Amica, We'll help protect it all. And the more you cover, the more you can save. Amika. Empathy is our best policy.
2: Welcome back to Face the Nation and our conversation with U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer. Let's talk about the other agreement. Uh, The House is set, Democratic-controlled House, is set to vote on the USMCA, the free trade deal with Mexico and Canada that's been rewritten. Um, This is a win for the president to get this through, but uh, Speaker Pelosi and her caucus uh, did have some last-minute maneuvers here. Uh, Speaker Pelosi is quoted as saying, we ate their lunch when it comes to the Trump administration.
5: So How do you respond a, to that? We had a great— uh, You made
2: some concessions to labor here. That well, was not insignificant, so, and it so did let, irk
5: some Republicans. So so, so let, me, let me make a point about that. We had an election, and the Democrats won the House, number one. Number two, it was always my plan, and I was criticized for this, as you know. It was always my plan that this should be a Trump trade policy— And a Trump trade policy is going to get a lot of Democratic support. Remember, most of these working people voted for the president of the United States. These are are not his enemies. So what did we concede on? We conceded on biologics. Yes, that was a move away from what I wanted, for sure. But labor enforcement? There's nothing about being against labor enforcement. That's Republican. The president wants... Mexico to enforce his labor laws. He doesn't want American manufacturing workers to have to compete with people who are, who are operating in, uh, in, in, in very difficult conditions. So there's... But you at, don't
2: think there's a political cost? Because uh, Republican senators were annoyed to be cut out of this last year. Okay,
5: look, there are always process issues. This bill... Is better now, with the exception of biologics, which is a big exception, with the exception of biologics, it's more enforceable and it's better for American workers and American manufacturers and and, and agriculture workers than it was before, for sure.
2: Mr. Lighthizer, thank you very much for joining us. And we'll be right back with a lot more Face the Nation. Stay with us.
8: Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that.
2: CBS News has been polling Americans on the impeachment inquiry ever since it was opened. And today we have a new poll. It shows that even after the testimony and debate over the articles of impeachment in the House committee, still less than half, 46 percent of Americans, feel that the president deserves to be impeached over his actions related to Ukraine, versus 39 percent who say he does not, and 15 percent say it is too soon to say. Joining us to talk about what's happening here and also give us uh, some insight into the race for the Democratic presidential nomination our CBS News Elections and Surveys Director Anthony Salvanto and CBS News Political Correspondent Ed O'Keefe. Good to have you both here. Good to see you. Thanks. So, Anthony, it looks like no clear winner to this argument.
3: No dramatic movement on those numbers. And this week we asked, in particular, do you find these arguments convincing that it was abuse of power that the Democrats are making and that comes out split? Do you find that the argument that the president obstructed Congress convincing and, the, and people are split? So there's a mixed bag here. And I want to emphasize, it's not that people in the poll feel that what allegedly went on was proper. They don't. And they do find the Democratic arguments a little more convincing than the Republican ones.
2: And on that particular question, people are just sticking to party line votes.
3: I think the way this has tracked the whole way is that views on impeachment are more or less just related to whether or not you think the president is doing a good job in the first place.
2: Ed, Speaker Pelosi was reluctant to start impeachment in the first place. There is a political cost to all of this. Have we calculated what it'll be?
4: Well, you know, it seems to be minimal. I've been struck by the fact that all of these vulnerable Democratic freshmen have essentially held firm on this issue. And I think this number here proves it, that if you voted for a Democrat last year, you're for impeachment. Therefore, there's enough support for them back home, so long as Congress is doing other things which is why we're going to see them pass the trade deal this week, make sure the government keeps the lights on, uh, is working on issues like prescription drug prices. The only fallout, and if this is the only fallout, it's telling, is this Congressman Jeff Van Drew from southern New Jersey is essentially, or we're told, probably going to switch from being a Democrat to a Republican in the coming days. It's a Republican district. He's taken some hits back home for it. And the party showed him some internal polling that found because he voted against starting the impeachment inquiry, his support among Democratic voters bottomed out. So he's just going to roll the dice as he might in Atlantic City in his district mm-hmm. and going to switch to become a Republican. But, but if that's it, Democrats probably in good shape.
2: And ultimately, we, we know Democrats with the majority are going to vote to impeach. This isn't going to change any kind of math there. Let's take a look now at the Democrats running for president in 2020. Our new battleground tracker poll surveyed likely Democratic voters in the March 3rd primaries. That's Super Tuesday. And there are 14 contests, close to a third of the delegates will be decided on that day. It is key. The top tier here, not a surprise. Former Vice President Joe Biden, is on top, with 28% of voters' support. Senators Elizabeth Warren right behind him at 25%, with Bernie Sanders at 20%. But we do have a new candidate in our second tier. After South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg, who has 9% support, Former New York mayor Michael Bloomberg comes in at 4% with entrepreneur Andrew Yang. Senators Amy Klobuchar, Cory Booker tied with 3% support. And the rest of the field comes in with 2% or less. So, Anthony, this was a a gamble for Michael Bloomberg does this mean so far it's paying off?
3: Well, it's key, Super Tuesday, not just for the big delegate hall you mentioned, but because that's where Michael Bloomberg is trying to enter this race, coming in after those early contests of, say, Iowa and New Hampshire. Now, you mentioned that he's in fifth place. One of the things that's interesting is you look at this and you see the Democratic Party a lot through the lens of his entry, which is to say, if you look at the liberal side of the Democratic Party, people who are more inclined to support Elizabeth Warren, support Bernie Sanders, they look at his entry and they say, well... It shows that wealthy people might have too, in, too much influence in politics, but he's pulling a little bit more from Joe Biden, a little bit more from Pete Buttigieg, and moderates are more inclined to look at that and say, well, it means he's independent from big donors, all that spending that he's doing there. So you see that, and you see him doing a little bit better, a little bit better, with people who say that the party is going in too liberal of a direction. The trouble for him, of course, is that that's not most Democrats. Most Democrats think the party is just about
2: right in its campaign direction. And this was a unique strategy for Bloomberg. Is it paying
4: off? Well, it is risky, but he can afford to do it. Uh, you know, being a multi-billionaire, and and it and you know. If you're already at 4% and you still have a little more than two months to go and you're advertising as much as he is and you're now traveling to these states and you're not devoting time and resources to those first four states but instead going to focus on these 14, what's to say that he doesn't at least hit the delegate threshold of 15% in some of these states and pick off enough delegates to keep going and remain a factor in the race. I was struck he held an event across the river here in Northern Virginia on Friday. A handful of people. His events have been quite small so far, mostly because they're tied to the organizations he's worked with in the past, climate control groups, gun control, mayors. This one had about 100 people, and I asked a few folks on their way out, why are you here, how did you find out about it? They heard about it from local Democrats, they're intrigued. He seems a little more charismatic than we thought. Clearly he'd be an effective manager which after a few years of Donald Trump, these Democrats said, wouldn't be a bad thing. So we'll see. He's got time. Somebody has to test the theory that the first four states perhaps get too much influence. He certainly can afford to try. But
2: Anthony, last time we talked, you said voters were satisfied. Democrats were satisfied with the field of candidates. Now they've got more options.
3: And I think this relates to that strategy, too, in that we went ahead and asked people, what are you in these Super Tuesday states, California, Texas, etc., Going to make of the results out of Iowa, out of New Hampshire. And half of them said that they use that to narrow their choices, that they use that specifically to see who is a contender. Well, that's a hurdle for anybody who tries to get in late. But at the same time, I think. Bloomberg is trying to bet on the idea that there might be reticence coming out of those early states, maybe build on that idea that the party was going in too liberal a direction. There's
2: nervousness.
3: And then there's nervousness. And that's another thing that we found. We asked people, well, how do you feel about just watching this whole campaign unfold? And more people said that they felt nervous than felt optimistic about it. And specifically, electability, the idea that one of these candidates can go ahead and beat Donald Trump next fall. There's no single candidate that a majority of Democrats says is probably going to beat Donald Trump. Joe Biden does relatively best on it, but it's still not most.
2: Ed, he buried the lead. Yeah. No Democrat <laughs> here is viewed as being able to beat Donald Trump.
4: Right. And that that's, was Bloomberg's, that's Bloomberg's theory of the race, too. That because nobody else can do it, why shouldn't I at least try? And so he'll try.
2: Thanks to both of you, gentlemen. We'll be right back with our political panel. Time now for some political analysis. Dan Balls is chief correspondent at The Washington Post. Kelsey Snell is a congressional reporter at NPR. Edward Wong is a diplomatic and international correspondent for The New York Times. And David French is senior editor at The Dispatch. Welcome to the program. Good to have all of you here. This is going to be an incredible week for you, Kelsey. You got, <laughs> you've got you got some significant votes teed up, not just impeachment, but this trade vote. And as Ed laid out, keeping the lights on in government. Yes. Since we taped that interview with the trade representative, Mexico has now said they're flying here and they have objections to what was supposed to be a real win for the president. Is that
10: vote, or any of these votes in jeopardy? Last time I talked to leadership Democrats, they say that the vote is on and that they expect things to go as planned. But again, these are late-breaking developments that may be changing their plans. They really do feel the need, though, to get this done before they leave for Christmas. They have a large number of particular particularly these battleground Democrats who need this trade deal so they can go home and say, I didn't just show up and impeach the president, I also got you things you care about.
2: And is this, David, this entire impeachment vote, I mean, you have written that Republican strategy here is largely just to base it on hypothetical defenses of the president rather than the facts.
11: Right, right. Republicans aren't taking him seriously or literally. They're taking him hypothetically, as a (laughs) a friend of mine, uh, Adam White, wrote. uh, And what's happening is they're saying, well, there's a way in which it could possibly be okay to investigate Ukraine. Pay no attention to the transcript. But there's a way in which it could be possibly okay to investigate corruption in Ukraine. There were individual Ukrainians who did things in 2016. But this doesn't bear any resemblance to the kind of investigation or the subjects of the investigation that Trump himself pressed the Ukrainians on. And I think one thing that uh, rank-and-file Republicans has not penetrated to them at all— is this idea that when Trump was talking about investigating 2016, he was talking about investigating a very wild conspiracy theory, one that would put an ally in an impossible position. How does an ally disprove a conspiracy theory that is dear to the president's heart when an ally needs hundreds of millions of dollars of military aid. And that,
2: that and you're talking something... there about drawing into question the intelligence community's conclusion that Russia interfered in 2016. Well, and
11: quite specifically, finding a mythical CrowdStrike server in the territory of Ukraine. This is a crazy conspiracy theory, and it's something that I think calls into question the president's fitness. And it's gotten less attention than the Biden angle, but I think it's very important to understand the president's state of mind as he conducts international diplomacy.
2: But it has drawn Republicans into the conversation to have to sort of also defend that portion of it a little bit. I mean, you had senators like Ted Cruz and others have to say, well, there was meddling by someone who was Ukrainian, therefore the president has merit to his conspiracies. Is there any political price to any of what we have learned here, Dan?
9: Well, there, 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 there could be some political price on both sides, I think. I mean, we know, as Kelsey said, that there are vulnerable Democrats in swing districts who, you know, could feel some pain from this. We're not clear on that. But, um, but I think that there are also Republicans who could feel this once we get through it. I mean, I talked to a Democratic strategist recently who made the argument that um, once you get into reelection campaigns, that some of these senators who are up in 2020 um, will pay for what they have done in defending the president so vociferously without giving any suggestion that he did something wrong.
2: So even if we are headed to a Senate trial with an essentially an acquittal, not not a vote to remove the president, that this could backfire.
9: Potentially, yes. I mean, it it, it goes to the question of um, how these senators explain their votes particularly the Republican senators, uh, to acquit. Uh, Do they say he did something improper but it doesn't rise to the level of impeachment, or do they say he did something egregious um, but we're X number of months away from an election and therefore let the voters decide, as opposed to saying what he did warrants removal from office? I think their words will will be used against them depending on how they
2: handle it. And Kelsey, quickly, are there any defections or any other party changes we should be expecting?
10: (laughs) Other than uh, Jeff Andrew, who already was mentioned by uh, Ed O'Keefe, we are not hearing about any other major defections. I would expect that there will be in the neighborhood maybe... Three, four, five Democrats who uh, vote against impeachment. That wouldn't be a surprise if there are a few of them that do go that direction. Don't really expect any Republicans to switch because one of the things that Republicans tell me all the time is that the president is popular with most Republican voters and the ones where he isn't popular, Mm -hmm. they're just not showing up to vote. It's not a matter of they're going to vote against uh, these members for a Democrat. They're just not going to show up.
2: Ed, I want to ask you about the president's centerpiece foreign policy issue. And that is trying to broker a breakthrough with North Korea to end the threat of their nuclear program. North Korea just carried out another test Friday.
12: Right. And I think what the president's very nervous about is North Korea possibly testing a nuclear warhead or an ICBM that might reach America, uh, would have that distance of reaching America. I think that this- In the
2: coming weeks.
12: Right. In the coming weeks. um, Kim Jong-un and his um, officials have said they'll deliver a Christmas gift to- President Trump, if Trump doesn't come up with a proposal mainly to, um, to take off sanctions from North Korea that would please Pyongyang, and I think that this will—you um, pre- see the president getting nervous. He's been tweeting about this. He says, don't try and undermine my chances in the 2020 election by doing this, and he knows that if these tests take place, they'll undermine one of his main diplomatic selling points to his supporters, which is that he got North Korea to, to quiet down on the testing.
2: And this breakthrough on the trade deal, uh, it's a smaller deal than what the president promised with China. Does that intersect here in any way? Does China become more helpful in trying to deliver North Korea to the table or... Is there no connection? I
12: think they've, um, from what I've been told, diplomats have managed to keep it very compartmentalized. The North Korea policy track has been separate from the trade negotiation track. Um, the trade deal that you're talking about, uh, what is interesting about it is that it doesn't address any of the large structural changes that the president wanted to see um, or that he was trying to tell his voters that he would get from China when he started this whole trade war. And in fact, Um, you see China has this command economy structure that has capitalist elements that it will continue to use and that uh, nothing in this phase one deal, which is considered a weak deal by many experts, addresses any of those um, aspects.
2: And as you reported today in the New York Times, there was a significant espionage attempt on U.S. soil by China.
12: Right. This is an interesting case because Uh, For the first time in more than 30 years, it looks like the U.S. expelled two Chinese diplomats um, who they believe were spies. And these um, spies or diplomats tried to drive onto a very sensitive military base in Virginia, a base that special operations forces on it. And and then they were caught and Mm -hmm. uh, they were uh, pushed out of the country. The main question about this is whether it'll add to the ongoing U.S.-China tensions and whether it'll become... Um, a point of conflict within the diplomatic relations.
2: There was a significant report in the Washington Post this week, Dan, um, detailing uh, real miscalculations, misleading in many ways, um, of the public by a series of U.S. administrations about the war in Afghanistan. Um, I asked Senator Lindsey Graham about it, and I want to play a bite for you here.
6: Well, to be honest with you, I know General Petraeus pretty well. I never thought I was sugarcoated about Afghanistan. Has it been mismanaged? Yeah. Has money been wasted? Absolutely. Is President Trump right to demand that Afghanistan do more and we pay less? Is President Trump right for NATO and the region to pay more in Afghanistan? Absolutely. Is he right to withdraw some of our forces? Yes. But we can't leave Afghanistan until this time. The time is right. International terrorism will come back. We're spending a lot of money in Afghanistan without a lot to show for it. I think we need to
9: change that policy
2: and how 's the story getting buried? How are there not congressional hearings being called?
9: I, I totally agree with that question, and I think that it 's unfortunate that there has not been more attention outside of what the post has done and uh, My colleague Craig Whitlock spearheaded this project. Um, it's more than sugarcoating, as Senator Graham suggested. I mean, this is deliberate misleading of the American people on a grand scale, um, and it's there in the documents, in the in the after-action reports that the government conducted itself. Um, I think that it's in part because we're in the middle of this impeachment proceeding, and it has absorbed all of the attention and taken all the oxygen um, in the you know in the media. But um, I have to think that at some point it's going to come back, and there will be some major questions that have to be answered, both on Capitol Hill and perhaps along the campaign trail.
2: You agree with that, David, because it seems to be popular with Democrats to also promise bring the troops back home. And yet you saw this attack on a U.S. base in Afghanistan this week. Uh, Senator Graham said to me that he thinks talks with the Taliban should be called off until there's a ceasefire. Yet the Trump administration is saying they'll just pause them right now.
11: Right. Well, you know, I think what we have is a... Politicians on both parties have a real problem, and the problem is the American people have competing desires. One is to end the wars. The other one is to keep America safe. And the problem is when you look at the emerging threats from international terrorism and what suppresses those threats, and that American military has been pretty successful at suppressing threats since 9-11 here at home, but that is has meant involvement overseas. And if you've got, you can't have both. You can't say we need to keep America safe the way we have since 9-11 and bring everybody home. Those are irreconcilable objectives that the American people have put before politicians. And I fear to connect it with the Afghanistan uh, papers, what you end up having is a Pentagon to- contorting and twisting mm-hmm. the truth in the pursuit of things that it can't necessarily fully accomplish and the entire strategic picture has becomes a political and strategic mess.
2: I mean, just to remind people, we're expecting to bring troops down to 8,600. There's still 12,000 Americans there, and it, and it, no hearings called uh, as yet. Kelsey, I, I want to ask you as well about another big election overseas or referendum overseas in the UK. Uh, Brexit, very confusing, but boiling it down, (laughs) conservatives won, Boris Johnson staying, UK is leaving the EU. Those are the certainties that we know of right now. What's the bottom line here uh, that Americans need to know about Brexit?
12: Well, I think a lot of Americans will be looking at this and wondering whether they can draw lessons for the 2020 elections here in America based on this and based on the larger issues of sovereignty and um, immigration and other issues that come up with Brexit. But I think that we should keep in mind that Jeremy Corbyn was widely disliked by many British the voters. Labour Right, even people who would traditionally vote Labour. And so I think it's, um, it's hard to draw that parallel because... Uh, right now, none of the Democratic candidates have, draw, uh, like, inspired that amount of dislike here in America. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Dan, do, do you agree with that?
9: I do agree with that. I mean, I think there is a question that the Democrats are asking themselves, which is how, how far left can we go and not be at risk in a general election? And I think that those uh, who are most vociferous to saying we have to be careful about that will take what happened in Britain and use it as an argument along the campaign trail. Um, parallels are a little bit different because of the Brexit overlay in this case, but the wipeout of the Labour Party—I mean, it's—I mean, it's the worst they've done since the 1930s. So um, obviously, Corbyn was a factor in that, but there's also a factor that that the that the working class vote there uh, the abandoned them, vote, right? In some ways. The populist working class vote abandoned Labour uh, in in droves, and in districts where they've had uh, strength for nearly a century.
2: Mm-hmm. Thank you all very much for breaking down another significant week here in the nation's capital. That's it for us today. Thank you all for watching. And we'd like to thank Jack Morton Worldwide. They designed and created our new set. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, Democratic Senator Dick Durbin, and U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter and Instagram. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m. and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday.
0: If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan,